Whew. That song, man, it's haunting. You know what I mean? Haunting, not just because it's Halloween, boo, scary. It's haunting because it speaks to a depth of the soul that um, often I don't know that we want to admit. I don't think I want to admit it. At least Dustin Kensrew, and that was him. Who That video was him. He was the writer of that song, and I love him. He's actually one of my favorite singers, one of my favorite bands, Thrice. Um, some good 2000s um, headbanging rock. So I love Thrice. I love Dustin Kensrew, but he's got that softer side and, and that more authentic, real... Um, haunting side. See, this is a journey that we're talking about today that can be disturbing because it forces us to look at the inside of our worlds. But this is a journey, the self-hearted to soft-hearted journey. It's actually an incredibly releasing and freeing journey if we're willing to take the look inside, if we're willing to push through the depravity we find in there, we might, in fact, we will get to the dignity on the other side. So this is a journey of moving through our depravity to get to our dignity. And you know, there's nothing quite like youth sports to bring out the depravity in all of us. I saw it yesterday firsthand. I have kids that do sports. I have a, a, a soccer playing little six-year-old and a flag football. Uh, and I ended up have a son, nine-year-old son, and I'm, I'm assistant coaching. And never have I wanted to really do that. I, I, I didn't sign up for it, um, but they had a, uh, the head coach was a college age, he just graduated college a few years, and he didn't have any kids on this team, but his, his girlfriend's younger brother was on the team. So that's how he got roped into coaching all these nine-year-olds, and I just saw this poor soul, and I said, you need a dad. You need a dad to bring out his dad voice, because you're, you know, like when everybody's messing around, like, kids, quit it, you know, like, you need that. And it's been so hard to try and teach this organized sport, because there's rules, right? It's not just, there's, there's these kids, these nine-year-olds, they're so used to going out there at their recess and just playing backyard football, right? And every kid now thinks they can be like Mahomes, right? And they just try to do these pass, you know? And you're like, no, 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 no. You gotta go through this before you can get to that. Um, but there's this remarkable thing that happens out there on the field, um, and it's these nine-year-olds wrestling with their souls, I know that sounds weird, but you see it when these, these nine-year-olds get flagged on penalties, okay? Because there are rules to the game. There are, there are a set of instructions that um, they are supposed to abide by. And one of those is you cannot flag guard. Do you know what I mean by flag guarding? What happens in flag football is they're running, they get the ball, they catch the pass, and they're trying to score a touchdown, and what they do is, in flag football, to tackle, what do you do? You pull the flag. So what they do is, is when somebody comes up to them to try and get their flag, and they try and knock the other kid's hand away. Instant penalty. And it's so instinctual that they don't even know they do it. All of a sudden, what happens is the ref blows a whistle, they throw a flag, and the kid goes, what? You know? Right? Because again, that's what you see on TV, right? You see all of our NFL athletes doing that, right? But that's not me. But then you see something happen. Because they're still nine and they still don't know what to do. And so they're wrestling with this public embarrassment. 
And so when the flag comes, I bet 50% of the time at least, then the tears come. And you see these nine-year-olds start to like collapse inwardly. And a lot of times you got to like send them to the sidelines to get, to get, make sure they're, you're okay, it's okay. They're coming into contact with their inner depravity. They cheated, they swatted, you know, and they don't know how it happened. They don't know why they did it. It was just an instinct to break the rules and try and get their own way. I feel it in myself. I, I've never gotten into a physical fist fight. I am not a fighter. I, I am a, a, a talker-outer, okay? <laughs> but at my daughter's soccer game, my, one of my sons was, was, he was being rude. He was, he was being rude in his own right. And he was some confusion over whose ball it was. And he got into an arguing match with another dad. <laughs> which is not okay. Like, like I, I want to acknowledge that is not okay, right? Like, that's on me. That's my responsibility. But I hadn't had enough coffee yet. And so <laughs> when that dad started talking to my son and arguing with him, I got up out of my chair and I started to walk over and like, what am I doing? Am I going to be one of those guys that ends up on TikTok or Instagram <laughs> who's instigating a fight at a six-year-old soccer game? There's something inside of us that is dark. It should make us uncomfortable to say that. But if we aren't willing to say the uncomfortable truth and address a, an uncomfortable but, but true reality, we're going to be like Neo in The Matrix, a top five movie for me, who doesn't know or is not willing to process that we are enslaved and oppressed by this, this inner depravity that keeps us from living out a God-given dignity. And so we need a journey that takes us into and through our depravity so that we can get to that dignity given to us by God. My own personal self-hearted to soft-hearted journey started when I was a college-age student. I was trying to figure out my life. I knew that I wanted God to be a part of it somehow. And so I got convinced to come do an internship here at Shoal Creek. And so I was with probably 20 other college-age young adults. We would relate to each other in small group, and we had to read this book. There's even, uh, with, we still have it outside, and it was called Inside Out by Dr. Larry Crabb. And he brought out this concept of big S sin and little s sin, okay? And just as young adults are apt to do, we very quickly turned that into big ass sin and little ass sin. <laughs> And so we would be in these small groups and somebody would relate something. We'd be journeying through and we'd be, you know, talking about, you know, oh, that's just some little ass sin. I wouldn't worry about that. That's not a big deal. But then, you know, somebody might say something, well, that's, that's a big ass sin. You better watch out for that. You need to deal with that. See, until my internship at Shoal Creek, the spiritual journey was really only about managing little s sin. Sin in behavior, sin that is observable on the outside, but doesn't reflect a truer, deeper, inner, big S sin on the inside. 
What about you? How do you measure your spiritual journey? How do you measure, not even necessarily, your relationship with God, because maybe that's not where you're at yet, but how do you measure your relationship with yourself? What allows you to get up in the morning and look at yourself and say, you know what, I'm okay, or I'm not okay? See, it is in our broken nature, what the Bible calls sin, to measure ourselves by what's observable on the outside, little less sin, instead of by looking at the deeper motives that are lurking inside of our heart, big S sin. And we have to get to this point in our lives where we say, what if, am I, am I willing to ask the question, what if my most significant problems in life aren't the wrongs on the outside, not behavior, but heart. This is a journey, self-hearted to soft-hearted, that will keep us from living inauthentically with ourselves, with others, and with God, which is something our culture kind of celebrates. Can you sense the inauthenticity in our culture? We just breathe it in air. I think we're always, we're always putting out, trying to put our best selves forward, and we're marketed to, and that's why there's so much self-help stuff out there, you know, be a better self. It's because we sense that inside, we sense what Dustin Kensrue is saying, there's something wrong in here. I need something. I need a path towards betterment. And so we are ripe hanging fruit for any guru that's going to tell us how to feel better about ourselves. Jesus adamantly opposed inauthenticity and operating as if life's primary tasks was managing the outside and covering up the inside. He created matrix moments for people where they are forced to ask themselves, what is the deeper reality that I'm not really aware of? And how is that deeper reality controlling me? In Matthew 23, Jesus gives us a metaphor that's going to help us on this self-hearted to soft-hearted journey. It's going to be the metaphor of the cup. And we're going to read it together. I'm going to read uh, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 13, and then I'm going to also read 23 and 26 together to shorten up the chapter a little bit. I'm going to cut a little bit out. But I would love for you to read it with me if you brought a Bible. I would love it for you to read it with me if you have it on the app or just read it on the sides. We're going to have the side screens. We're going we're to put it up there. But what I would love for you to do is step into this with me. Be immersed in these words. Come together as a community and let's process this together. And in fact, I'm even going to pray right now just that we would receive these words of Jesus and that something would penetrate our hearts in what he had to say. Father, just praying for us to, to receive this word, to hear it, to read it, to, to see it, and to know what you want to reveal about us, what you want to reveal about yourself, so that we might have the courage and the instruction and the guidance to plow into our depravity, to push through it, 
so that we can receive the dignity you want to give us. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels, and they love to sit at the head of the table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings, and they walk in the marketplaces loving to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you only have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious laws, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't get in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. You blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What do you feel? Pay attention to that emotion right now. It's so important when we read or hear these words to pay attention to the emotion that comes up in us. Is there an anger? Is there an uncomfortability? Is it cringy? <laughs> what do you think? What do you see happening? If you transport yourself back to that moment in time, who are the characters? Who are the audiences? How are they receiving the words? It feels like there's two audiences here, two points of emphasis. First, there's the larger crowd and the disciples. And Jesus is saying to them, do as they say, talking about the religious people. He's talking to ordinary folk, it seems. It seems like he's talking to regular folk, perhaps. These crowds, and he's telling them, do as these people say, these religious people say, but not as they do. They are speaking truth, but they are not living truthfully. Everything they do is for show. 
And what I think Jesus is doing kind of at first here is he's saying that it's really important to him that our motives be right, our hearts be right, not just the behavior, that there's a way to live where we can do the right thing for show. And he's trying to get us to see that these religious people like to feel good about themselves, so they focus on dressing up their exteriors while ignoring their interiors. And so doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is just as offensive to Jesus as doing the wrong thing. Because what Jesus is after ultimately isn't our behavior. What he's after is our hearts. And Jesus explains that living that way, living that inauthentically, living a life of hypocrisy, of trying to to put on a good show, but being filled with with the wrong inner motives, that check's got to be cashed someday. Like, that's, that's a bill that has to be paid to live that inauthentically. And he says, you know, that line there when he says, those who exalt themselves, get that themselves, well, those who lift up their self, perhaps we could think about that as ego, someone who lifts up themselves, their view of themselves, their own self-image, they're going to be humbled one day. But those who live authentic, on, authentically with themselves who are honest about what's going on and aren't trying to live a life for show, somebody's going to come and pay that bill for them. After explaining this, Jesus really seems to call to task the religious instructors. And I'm going to read that again, just verses 23 through 26. I just want to go back to that briefly and kind of read that where he calls them to task again. So in verses uh, 23 through 26... Jesus is recorded as saying this, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but you do not neglect the more important things. You blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but the inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. And when I read that, I get a picture of something. I get a picture of a cup. Actually, what I get a picture of is an old western spittoon. (laughs) You know what I mean? One of those things in like uh, Looney Tunes cartoon that sits in the corner and just spit it, and ba-ding, you know, like this thing that is shiny on the outside, but on the inside is just sick and gross. See, I actually chewed some when I was in college. I tried that out. I, I tried chewing. I uh, did that for a period of time in my life. I lived in a household of people uh, who also chewed. Um, I listened to David Allen Coe, Copenhagen. Makes you feel so good. It's all right. Did all that, all right? And living in a house and doing that for a period of time in my life, you would live in this place, and what would be sitting around the house with a bunch of men who did that were spitters, spit cups. And so you'd have like a, a can of Mountain Dew, right? You'd think it would be a can of Mountain Dew sitting out. Somebody had been spitting in it, and they just leave it sitting out. And if you weren't paying attention, 
you might grab that can of Mountain Dew and go, lest you think every now and then somebody would actually touch their lips to it. And inside of that is just vile. And just, I get that image with what Jesus is saying here. Is that there's a way to live life where we just obsessively polish the outside of the cup thinking that makes us clean, that makes us good people. But we ignore um, the deeper senses of injustice that we participate in, of of, of faithlessness, of not trusting that God is creator and we are created and, and we need to follow him because he knows what's best in our lives. All that lives on the inside. And so we're living an asinine life to just focus on polishing the outside of a cup and not dealing with what's on the inside. And what does he say is on the inside of the cup? Greed and self-indulgence, a self-hearted life. See, a life lived inauthentically where we care more about how we look on the outside but ignore the deeper substance of what exists on our insides, it angers Jesus. It angers him because he loves us and he created us for better. And he just won't stand for it. We are his creation. We exist in that relationship with him. He has a design for how we live life. And when we are in violation of that design, when we are living a self-indulgent, self-hearted life, it's a life of disobedience. It's violating his design for our life. And when we live in violation of our design, we suffer instead of flourish. I have found this to be true for myself more in the last two to three years of my life than the last 20 to 30 combined. A little over two, two and a half years ago in May, June 2020, I broke down hard. And I mean like old-fashioned, nervous breakdown hard. Like I had anxiety erupt in my life that I couldn't control. I had to take four to six weeks off of work completely just to get to sleep right. (laughs) Now to be fair, it was one of the most stressful times in at least my generation. In uh, 2019, at Shoal Creek, we were reorganizing some staff responsibilities and leadership, and there was more coming onto my plate. I was having to deal with that. We were even reorganizing our vision for Shoal Creek. And like what Roy talked about up here from stage a little bit, that whole idea of we know there's so many people that are never, ever going to look for a church as a place to be on a spiritual journey. And so we, we honor this gathering But this gathering isn't church. Church is people, and we need people to be the church in the neighborhoods and workplaces if we're ever going to really fulfill Jesus' command to go and redeem this world. And so we were reorganizing not just my personal responsibilities, but an entire vision for what we want to accomplish over the next 25 years at Shoal Creek. And then COVID arrived in March. Remember that? Everything went on shutdown. You remember that like national address on like a Sunday night? I think, if I remember right. Somebody can correct me. <laughs> and we went on shutdown, and like the kids didn't go back to school after spring break. <laughs> it's the worst ever. 
I had three kids at home. Now I was trying, like, we, we, they had to learn from home. We had to teach them from home. My wife is a teacher. She had to teach from home, and I had to work from home. We didn't escape the house. Bat crazy. That's <laughs> what well, we were. And then you remember, it was that, still, that same summer where the pain of racial injustice in America hit a boiling point and swept across our country. I was planning a vacation. We were going on vacation. We were driving, and I remember needing to pick a hotel and thinking and planning to myself, will my family be safe from the riots? I never thought I'd have to address that in my life. Like, I never thought that would be something I'd have to solve, not getting a hotel too close to rioting. And in all of that, in all of my self-reliance, my system of self collapsed under the weight of feeling like I had to hold it all together and not fail when it felt like everything I was doing was failing. And as I reflect on that breaking point in my life and that image, the image that affected me then and still affects me now is this image of the cup and the dish that Jesus is talking about. How I had been living a life of of caring more about looking like I could hold everything together in my own strength, in my own capabilities. I cared more about protecting my self-image of being a good dad, a good husband, a good, a good leader, a good employee, than I cared about living authentically and admitting that I was in over my head and struggling. So on the outside, it looked like I had my crap together, but on the inside, everything felt bleak. And instead of my heart drawing near to God and believing that in his goodness and in his love, he would take care of me and my family, I decided I need to just work harder, spend more hours worrying, and exhausting myself. That was my self-strategy to get through that time in my life, and that strategy imploded. Peering into my cup, I had to see that I cared more about getting approval from others than receiving my approval from God. I felt an incredible emptiness in my cup, that I was trying to fill with self-performance, not God's love for me. So you and I, we were created with core thirsts, deep inner motives that drive the strategies in our lives. Me, I'm an approval seeker. I'm an approval seeker. It's just a part of my core identity. It's a core thirst. And so for me, I feel the most emotionally secure when I'm getting approval for people. It's been so hard to do this. Did you know that? Sometimes I get asked, do you still get nervous when you come up here? Yes. It's hard because, you know, what if you don't like what I have to say today? God forbid I say something wrong. Like, that's where my my deepest concern is more like, am I honoring God through his word? These These aren't my words, yet I'm supposed to speak and be honest. What if I violate that in my relationship with him? That scares the crap out of me because he's been so good. So I'm an approval seeker, but I violate God's design for my life when I live off the approval of others or even off the approval of my own self. 
more than I live off of the approval of God. Some of you, your deep core thirst is ambition. And so you violate God's design by getting your worth from a sense of accomplishment, of getting things done, of being a a person who has an identity as a getter-dunner. And you feel the most emotionally secure when you've checked all those tasks off your list. That's actually going to lead to more suffering than flourishing in your life. Because your worth and your identity was not designed to be based off of your own sense of accomplishment, but off of Jesus' accomplishment in his life and his death on the cross. Others of you, your core thirst is appetite, your core thirst for acquiring things and experiences to help you feel secure. And so you have an appetite for the things of this world more than the things of heaven. And you violate your design by getting your emotional security. You feel best um, when you have money to spend or experiences that you can check out into. And you value those more than you value an intimate relationship with your Father in heaven. See, the key verb we associate with the self-hearted to soft-hearted journey is the verb obey. Why? Because when we disobey God's design for us, we are choosing our self-strategies, our self-reliant ways, not God-dependent ways. And the more we choose self-strategy, the harder our hearts and our minds get towards receiving God's instruction. And just like soil that is hard cannot receive a seed that brings fruit, sometimes we, we need something to break through that crust. We need a deep plow to cut through so that God can actually speak truth to our lives and we can say, dang, I've not been obeying my design. Okay, God. How can I turn to you? What does it look like to receive what you have to say instead of relying on my own self-strategies to feel good about myself? If we say we trust God, which was the journey we talked about last week, moving from earner to heir, if we say we trust God, then what naturally will follow is obedience. We can't say we trust God and then live a life of self-indulgence. That is the life of the Pharisee. Say we, saying we believe we trust in God, but doing things and filling ourselves up according to our own designs. So what if the biggest obstacle in your spiritual growth isn't anything that looks wrong on the outside, but is just the plain old desire to be in control of your life according to your own design and not God's? think if you're willing to admit that the worst things about you aren't on the outside but are alive on the inside then there's hope this is this is where we have to be willing to push through this is the scene in the matrix where we have to be willing to go all the way down the rabbit hole and out to the other side we have to be like dustin kensrew who said we have to acknowledge there's something dark inside of me because if i keep ignoring it it's going to keep controlling me and i'm not going to get to a spot of redemption Can I push through inner depravity so that I can get to God-given dignity? Jesus came to fill up and rinse out every nook and cranny of our souls 
Jesus' way is the way of cleaning the inside of the cup. And I think a good place to start, you think, what do I do with that? What kind of conversation can I have out of today that would actually help me make progress? It would be discussing with someone, what is your core thirst? Are you an approval seeker? Are you an accomplisher? Are you someone who who has an appetite for acquiring things? This kind of conversation worked with 11-year-old boys, which ought to be the ultimate litmus test for can a spiritual discussion work. I sat down with my son, Everett, and one of his friends kind of did like a little small group after school um, at one of the local coffee shops, and I just brought up this metaphor of the cup, and we read the same scripture passage, and we just talked about it, and I kind of held up my coffee cup, and I said, guys, what do you think lives at the bottom of your cup? And I just explained, "Are, are you an approval seeker? I am. I feel the most full when I have people's approval or my own approval, approving of myself. What about you? What fills you up the most? Is it things and experiences that that give you a good sense of comfort? Or is it accomplishment? And in the midst of me and two 11-year-old boys, it was really cool, because one of them says like, yeah, I'm I'm appetite, for sure. I I want comfort, I want things. And then the the other kid, he said, I think it's accomplishment for me. And I was just like, isn't that cool, guys? Isn't that awesome that we can sit here and reflect different natures and that we can understand something about ourselves that can lead us into a deeper relationship with God? See, identifying our core thirst allows us to enter into what the Bible calls repentance, turning away from disobedience and turning towards a heart that longs to do what God wants more than we want to do anything else. And so I have a song we're going to sing here at the end. And this song means a lot to me. It's a song I picked up on my journey, kind of post-breakdown, because it gave me hope. So that, because the danger here, there's a danger in focusing too much on depravity or thinking that all that exists is depravity. I think that's where um, religious culture can get off tracks a little bit where we focus just on sin and not on Savior. And I can remember reading um, an old hymn writer, John Newton, uh, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. You know, Amazing Grace, that's not the one we're doing actually, but in case you were wondering. And, and in the writings and then letters of John Newton from like 300 years ago, people were dealing with this stuff 300 years ago. Like this is a, th- this is a thing, y'all. This isn't just a modern problem. I was reading these letters from like 300 years ago and John Newton, you know, somebody had written John Newton about how bad they were. That was basically their problem. They were, they were just like us, stuck on depravity. I'm just a worthless piece of crap. I'll never be any better. And John Newton wrote back to this person and said, for every one look that you look at your sin, you need 10 looks at your Savior. For every one look you look at your depravity, you need 10 looks at your dignity. Because our wounds hurt. And it sucks to suck. (laughs) It doesn't feel very good. But if our emotions are tied to how we feel about ourselves or what we think about ourselves, then we're really just getting our identity from our performance and not Jesus' performance. That's a huge shift. That's a huge shift in the spiritual journey to say, wow, there's immense depravity in me, it's real. 
there really is something dark, but that's not who I am anymore. And I'm going to receive the life that Jesus lived, and I'm going to be covered by it just like a jacket. I'm literally going to put the life of Jesus on so that when God looks at me, he sees his son. And I'm going to live out of that and not trying to fill my own cup up anymore. And so this last song has helped me do that. I love it. If, if, you know, I'm not planning on kicking the bucket anytime soon, but just so it's recorded, like, this is a song I definitely want played at my funeral, okay? Like, just to be honest, like, I love this next song because it helps me, it gives me hope, and I think it can give you hope too, to be willing to look at the depravity, admit that it's there, confess it, turn away from it, and turn towards Jesus. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the lyrics here. It's called His Mercy is More. And I'm going to read through these lyrics, and then I'm going to pray. And then our um, Jenny and Philip are going to come up, and they're going to just sing this hymn. And I'd love for you to just be immersed in it. Just let it wash over you and get to the deep nooks and crannies in your soul where you need that grace. So here are the lyrics. What love could remember... No wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Father, we're just here living our our human lives on this earth knowing that things aren't all right inside. Either blindly and and wrongly thinking we have the resources to deal with it on our own or humbly and meekly and even a little frighteningly feeling like we need help to deal with it. Help us to see Jesus right now Help us to see Jesus. Because we can get so caught up on our failures, our flaws, our self-centeredness. We can get so caught up on that that we can think that's the whole picture and it's just not. You have had a plan for our depravity since before we were created and since before time began. How could you not have a plan for us? And what we want to do is we want to trust in that plan. We want to trust that Jesus is more. More than we fear. More than we hurt. More than we cry out. And we want to trust in his moreness. His greatness his unfailing love 
and kindness. So I just pray today, right now, in this room, in the people here in my own heart, the people watching online, that we would see Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus and realize He is enough, we don't have to get stuck on anything else. And it's in His name we pray, Father. Amen.